Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the glory of being baptized into your family. And Lord, we rejoice with the roses tonight. Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the majesty and glory of what your son has done. And I pray that we would be changed. Amen. A couple of years ago, as a family, we read through the Gospel of John. And when we hit the account of the Last Supper that John records, the conversation, our kids frequently said, Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) If you have read John 14 through 16 recently, you'll know what I mean. It's not the easiest conversation to follow. And we're beginning in the early stages of that conversation tonight. And the lectionary actually doesn't do us a lot of favors as we step in. It begins by saying when he had come out. And we were like, well, who is that? It would be helpful to know. And what does the departure of said unnamed person have to do with what Jesus says right after it? The when he had gone out is referring to Judas. Jesus had just looked at the disciples and said, one of you will betray me. And he looked at Judas and he said, what you have to do, do quickly. And Judas left. The other disciples didn't understand why he left, thinking perhaps he had to buy more groceries. But it was the departure of Judas that Jesus is responding to when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Again, you'll be forgiven if you don't know what he's talking about, because it seems like a highly elliptic way of talking about what he's actually referring to. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the cross as the place where he would glorify the Father. The cross is the place where he would be glorified in turn by the Father. And so when Judas leaves and he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, what he's saying is that the path to the cross has been set in motion. The path to the cross has been set in motion. That's why Jesus then turns and looks at his followers and says, you will seek me, but you won't find me. And just as I said to others, you will not be able to go where I am going. Something is happening here. The stage is set. The die is cast. Judas leaves. Now is the moment for the Father and the Son to be glorified in the cross. The disciples cannot follow. And so Jesus, at that moment, issues a command to his disciples. In this moment, this moment of looming darkness marked by Judas' departure, marked by the cross that lies ahead, Jesus looks at them and he says, love one another. Love one another in this moment. Love one another. And people will know that you are my disciples. Think of the, the heartache. Think of the tragedy When in this moment of crisis in the darkness of the cross, the disciples not only do not love one another, but the last thing they actually want to be known as is a disciple of that man. They scatter. They fail. 
because they don't want to be marked by his name at this moment. I want you all to feel this moment with me. Feel the weight as Jesus sits at that table and looks Judas in the eye and says, what you have to do, go do. I won't stop you. And he looks at his other disciples and he says, you're not going to be able to follow me here. He sees what lies ahead. The pain, the tragedy, the deep heartache. He knows what's looming in front of them. And he says to the disciples, stay true to each other in this moment, in this darkness. Stay true to each other and love each other. And people will at least know that you are mine. Yet he says it knowing full well they won't be able to follow through, that they'll scatter. It's a descent into darkness. And we can imagine, especially because we know what comes in Gethsemane, that he says these things with his heart breaking inside because he knows the darkness that lies before him. He knows the failure of the disciples to come. And he says, love one another, and they will know, but they do not. It's a descent into darkness, and he can see looming on the horizon the fact that all of the darkness, all of the evil of the world is about to fall on his shoulders. He sees looming that God himself will be humbled, judged by mankind. He sees that we, the people that he's created, will be standing there holding the gavel, condemning him, saying, crucify him, crucify him. He sees his followers scatter in fear rather than show the world whose they are. This is the scene that we enter into in John 13. And we can imagine the fact that Jesus' heart was heavy in this moment because he knew what was before him. Revelation 19, the other passage that we have today, could not be a more different picture. It couldn't be more at odds with this scene from John 13. Listen to the first eight verses. John says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
the picture couldn't be more different. Rather than running in fear, his followers are now clinging around him, shouting praises like thunder. Rather than Jesus Christ judged by humanity, he has now assumed his rightful place as the judge over all of humanity. The wicked are no longer in power. They have been destroyed. The wicked have been destroyed and judged. Justice has been done. And the world is now full of light and victory. Hold in your mind the picture of Jesus seated at that table, facing Gethsemane and the cross. Hold in your mind Jesus, knowing that his disciples would fail and would fall even as he called them to stay together. Hold in your mind that picture of him facing grief and pain, saddened, burdened, prepared to face the shame and the guilt he did not deserve. Hold that in your mind and listen to Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The picture couldn't be more different, could it be? Where he sat once before in grief, knowing the cross before him, we see the same Lord now as a conquering hero, the victorious king. His enemies are scattered. The kingdom is secure. In glory and victory, he's preparing for a wedding banquet. The feast has been set, and this is why the herald in verse 9 cries out, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The agony of the cross had to come first, but it was not the end. Only the one who experienced the full weight of judgment on his own shoulders could be trusted to judge righteously. In the words of Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death had to come before a table set in the presence of the enemies. We see his descent into the darkness in John 13, and we see his exaltation in Revelation 19. In these two scenes, we see almost the full scope of redemption. It's not the full scope. It would only be full if we started with his very birth. Jesus Christ, born in obscurity, humbled in suffering, obedient, descending to the grave, rising in triumph, conquering all of his enemies, and in the end, winning a bride for himself. Don't forget that last movement, the marriage supper. What we see is not the full scope of redemption, but it's most of it. 
But that full scope of redemption, beginning with his birth in obscurity and ending with the marriage supper of the land, that full scope of redemption is actually the full history of the world. This is our history. This may sound like a strange statement to make to you, and I just want to explore it for a couple of minutes. This picture of Jesus born in obscurity, humbled, suffering, to the very depths of suffering, death itself, the grave, rising in victory, conquering, coming back as Lord, winning a bride for himself, this is humanity's history. When we study or write history, we usually examine it from our eyes, from our perspective. We talk about nation versus nation, about war, about power, money, politics, about famine and migration, about flood, about revolution. We're looking at human history from the inside. I want you all to step back with me and look at it from the outside. Look at human history from the perspective of God. Imagine that you are one of the angels peering in from the outside. We see earth covered in war and death, covered in futility because of our rebellion. But we watch and we see God descend, humble himself under man's perverse judgment. We see him descend into darkness. We see him descend into the grave. We see even those who believed in him scatter in fear. But then as we watch, we see him rise forth in power, conquer death, Satan, and sin. We see him destroying evil, ransoming captives, creating a new people for himself, creating a new creation, winning a bride, a bride who will one day sit and rule by his side over this new creation. This is the history of the world from God's perspective. It's what the angels watched. This is God's history. And my hope tonight is that you would begin to see it and feel it as your own. As an aside, and I guess I have one or two minutes to take an aside. As an aside, this story that I just told, the story from God's perspective, the birth in obscurity, Humbling all the way down to nothing, going to the point of the grave, rising back out in power, conquering the enemies, building a new kingdom, and taking a bride for oneself. This story is the story of the world. And because it is the story of the world, it's embedded within each one of us, whether we know it or not. Even though people try to deny that this is the true story, it's like it's inescapably wrapped into our souls, and we see it pop up in all of our literature. We see it pop up in all of our art. We can't get away from the fact that this is the true story of the world. The list of characters who fulfill it is long. You could talk about Odysseus, wandering in obscurity, coming back home to establish his kingdom and win victory over all those who would steal who? His bride. Winning his bride back again. We could talk about Aeneas wandering in obscurity from the flames of Troy, presented with false brides left and right, landing and creating a new kingdom, conquering the enemies and taking a bride for himself. And we say, why does this story keep popping up? We could keep going. 
And I'll only go a little bit farther because it's too much fun. But you see these elements even in places like Harry Potter. Star Wars is on my list. <laughs> but think, Harry Potter, born in obscurity, going through a form of death, coming out to conquer the enemies. And what does he have to do in the end? Mary Jenny. The story is not complete with the bride. You see this story embedded in our psyche. George Lucas didn't get it all the way right. He's got all the elements there. He didn't know the story. It's embedded in us because it's the true story of humanity. This is my point. He didn't get the final element because Luke never won a bride. He had every other note there. They're playing the song that God wrote in these stories. Of course, the best telling of all outside the Bible is Tolkien's Aragorn. He knew the story most clearly, and so when he wrote it, the details fit perfectly. Aragorn living a life of obscurity, going through the paths of the dead, winning the great victory on the other side, and what waits him as the kingdom is reestablished, the bride Arwen. Every note of the story along the way. My point in this aside which I bet you didn't mind me taking, is that this story that is God's story is the story of humanity. And it's embedded in us whether we deny it or not because it is true. In God's story, we can't help but tell it over and over again. We can't help but tell it because it's true. That we have the ultimate hero, humbled to the point of obscurity, birth and humility, suffering and obedience to the point of death, all of the notes are there and rising in triumph. And we see him in Revelation 19 as he is rightfully seen. The King of kings and the Lord of lords seated on his horse with his sword and his rod in his hand, conquering the enemies of God as the feast is laid for his wedding. This is what God is doing. This is who Jesus is. And we see ringing around him, multitude after multitude, shouting and crying out. It sounds like thunder and waterfalls. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The story has come to its conclusion at last. This is humanity's history. This is where it's going. As I wrestled with these passages this week, I kept thinking to myself, our picture of Jesus is just too small. We acknowledge that he died for our sins. We confess that he rose from the grave. We believe that he will come again, but we scarcely see the full scope of what he is doing. This victorious Lord making all things new. We barely notice it. Even the bit that we see, we frequently don't let dominate how it approaches the world. The reason why is because we see history from our perspective. We don't see it from his. We don't see how our stories fit into this story. We have no clue what our nation has to do with this grand story that he is acting out. And so we live as if that grand story is not there or is not true. It's too easy to live as if what we do or don't do 
what we achieve or don't achieve, as if what's done to us or is not done to us is too easy to live as if those are the only things that matter. As if the only thing that matters is how much work that I got, that I got done today or how I was treated. It's too easy to live, in other words, separated from God's true history. The question that I kept wrestling with is what would it mean to live in his story? To live as if his victory is ours. Live as if his victory is ours in the same way that every person of Gondor's life was changed when Aragorn was king. You see the point? Once Harry Potter conquers Voldemort, nothing is the same, and you would be a fool to live like Voldemort is still there. Once Aeneas founds this new civilization, you're no longer wandering. All things are new. Once Odysseus is home and the suitors are slain and he's got his wife Penelope back, Telemachus, his son, life is new from this moment onwards. What would it be for us to live as if Jesus actually has done these things? That's the thing that I kept running into this week, is that we live as if he forgave me of our sins, but now all of life revolves around, well, I've got to make certain I get everything done. These are the questions I want to ask y'all tonight. What if our king actually went through the grave for us? I know we all confess this, but let it sink into your soul. What if we actually follow a Lord who is making all things new? Let that one linger for just a second. What if he's actually making you new? What if he's making all of creation new in all of its brokenness? What if you actually have been ransomed? What if you've actually been bought back out of the hands of the kidnapper? Stolen away from the one who would destroy you? What if his accusations are just empty posturing because you are actually in the hands of Christ now? What if the accusations that you level at yourself are just you believing the devil's lies rather than what is actually true? You see the point of these questions, what it would mean to live into this story? What if these things are the real story? What if you were actually adopted by the king? If he actually chose you, if he actually loves you, what if the story is true? This is all what I want y'all to feel and see tonight. What if you discovered that his mercy actually covers more and not less than what you expect? What if you come face to face with him and you realize that all along he was saying to you, my beloved, my beloved, my beloved, I was struck this week by the fact that when he said, love one another and prove to be my disciples, and Peter failed royally because he didn't want to be known by Jesus' name, but Peter was in that crowd in the scene in Revelation 19, shouting out, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What if you discover that his mercy is deeper than you expect and not less? What if you discover that you would actually be there in that scene in Revelation 19? all things new, shouting out in praise, that is my king on that horse. That is my Lord. 
What if you discover that you are actually invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Invited as a treasured guest, invited as a participant. What if we discover that the sufferings of this life can't actually be compared with the glory to come? That no matter what has hit you or hurt you, that the glory to come is deeper and richer and longer and farther. This is my point today. Could we see our lives in the story, in the frame of what Jesus has done? Our picture of Jesus is very simply too small. For you, for me, he went through the valley of the shadow of death. For you, for me, he rose in victory and scattered our enemies. For you and me, he has set a banqueting table, a feast. For you, for me, he's actually issued an invitation. He's saying to you right now, come to the marriage supper of the land. Come, come to the marriage supper. Our picture is too small. But even in that, the things I recount there, those things are too small. Because he says more than I invite you. He actually says, I am making all things new. All things. The lonely and ashamed recesses of your heart, the places of exhaustion and weariness and brokenness, the griefs that you carry and have suffered, the brokenness of creation itself, he is making all things new. If this is true, you see how it changes everything. You see how suddenly there is no such thing as an ordinary day. There is no such thing as the way things used to be. If this is true, we suddenly can become a people of hope because we say, I know that what I see and experience today is not the end of this story. The darkness of today cannot extinguish the story. If this thing's true, we can be people of hope. If this is true, we can be people of love because we don't need to get our way anymore. Because we have a Lord who sits in victory, who will watch over and protect us. The world will see whose we are when we realize that we don't need to fight for ourselves. We can love because we have a Lord who fights for us. If this is true, we can become people of peace because we believe in one who will be victorious in the end. You see how this changes all things. My hope and prayer today is very simply that you see your life sunk into the depths of what Christ has done and that you cling from beginning of his life to the end of his reign to what he is doing and has done for you. Let that be the story that governs your life. As we close, my last exhortation to you, very simply, is that if this is all true, and we believe and testify that it is, if this is all true, let us join that crowd in Revelation 19. Let our voices sound like thunder in mighty waters as we sing out his praise. Because if this is true, he is worthy of all that we can offer. Amen.